Father, thank you for what we thought about last week, where we saw that Jesus was the one with power and authority, and yet comes and associates with people like us. Not far off, not distant, not out there somewhere, but uses his authority with compassion for good. And so we pray as we look at these verses this morning, again, as we often pray, we don't simply want a better grasp of the passage, but we want to hear your voice. We want to know you better and love you more as a result. Help us to see what this means for us. Correct us where we need correcting. Encourage us where we need encouraging. Lord, we want to hear your voice, we say. Amen. April the 8th. 1966, Time magazine published an iconic edition with this on the front. Is God dead? And the story goes, this is the edition that generated the most reader responses ever. And yet, strikingly, the one that generated the second most reader responses ever came 20 years later, August the 15th. Who was Jesus? Now, I'm not sure, but it may be that these last 12 months when there was an addition about a, a new American president um, and the, where the truth still exists, that may have surpassed those reader responses. And quite how you measure that with social media, I'm not sure. But anyway, it's striking, isn't it, that people want to know, people want to know, is God dead? People want to know who Jesus is. Why? Well, because the answer that we get to, to those questions gives us answers to the fundamental questions of life that we all struggle with and we all think through, that we all wrestle with. Does, does God care about the suffering that we see all around us? Does God care about me and what I'm going through? Can I get free from my past? Can I change? Is there real hope for my life? Is there real hope for this world? What happens when we die? In fact, what is life all about, really? What are we here for? And you see, the identity of Jesus gives answers to all of those questions and many more. They're questions that people wrestle with. Which is why, as we continue our series in Mark's Gospel, we need to consider the evidence because the evidence changes things and the evidence that we'll encounter is more than just an exercise in comprehension or ideas. We'll see that the evidence changes people's lives. We'll see that this morning. Maybe you saw it as Josh read for us. Various people that Jesus meets and, and engages with leave those meetings utterly transformed. It's worth remembering, we all need to listen in. It may be here, and you wouldn't call yourself a believer. Maybe you're just looking into Christian things. It may be you're not quite sure where you stand with it all. And we are so pleased you are here. I would love to come and chat to you afterwards. Do come and um, see me with a coffee. I'll have the coffee. We'll get you one as well. But we're thrilled that you're here with us. Weigh up the evidence. Listen carefully. Whoever you are, engage with that question of who Jesus is. Because what you make of him changes everything. But I want to say as well, if you are a believer here, and I suspect many of us will be, perhaps most of us will be, 
And we need to listen as well. This is for us because as far as we can tell, Mark was not primarily written for people who were not Christians. Actually, as far as we can tell, Mark was a gospel written for Christians to be encouraged to keep going despite persecution. Despite pain, despite hardships, keep going. That seems to be why Mark was written, which is maybe why Mark retells the story of Jesus as he does. We, we saw it last week, and actually as I prayed at the beginning, you, you see both the power and authority of Jesus. You see he's in charge, but as well as that, he comes with compassion and love, and he identifies with us. He's not far off. He's not aloof. He hasn't got hands full. He cares. He's close. Which for a people then feeling the real pinch of following Jesus and that it really hurt, that would be profoundly comforting. And I take it the same is true for us now. It may be that you are struggling as a Christian. It may be you're not quite sure whether you can keep going or whether it's worth it. Well, do listen to what Mark says to us because we will see that Jesus is for us and that he is worth it. Have a look down at the passage with me. I recognise it's a longer passage perhaps than we would normally do. What we're going to do is we're going to start right up high and we'll go for some sort of broader observations of why we've looked at these sections together. Then we're going to circle in more closely for a bit of detail and sort of wander through the four encounters. And then we will zoom right in and think through four things to chew on this week to engage with, what they might mean for us. How these aren't just sort of Sunday morning things or, or things to rework in our brains, but actually to live out. So, right up high, bigger picture, lie of the land. Eyes down. You see, verse 21 through to verse 45, there are four little cameos going on. And we are in and around the sort of Galilee-Capernaum area. That is, Jesus is just starting his public ministry. He's, he's still at home. This is geographically tight. In fact, more than that as well, it's actually temporally tight, time-wise. At least from 21 to 38, it is a 24-hour snapshot of a Sabbath. If you track it through, you see Mark is wanting to zoom right in on a, almost a day in the life of Jesus at the beginning. And then we've thrown the leper in as well. Four little cameos that show the power of the king, that show this kingdom spreading. So there's an exorcism of a demon impure spirit there's the healing of a woman and then many more there's an early morning quiet time by himself verse 35 to 39 and then this cleansing of a leper verse 40 to 45 and it's striking that for each one the thing that seems to unite them as far as i can see is this peculiar interplay of of on the one hand jesus's popularity rocketing his reputation is is off the scale. Everyone's crowding in. And yet at the same time, that interplays with him wanting to keep it on the down low, on the DL, I believe you youngsters call it. It's not private because it's public ministry. It's out in the open, but he doesn't seem to want the, the news to spread. He wants to keep it quiet at this point. So that's the broadscape of the landscape, this interplay of popularity going up and yet Jesus wanting to squash it and keep it down. Let's zoom in for some of the details. And as we said, it is the Sabbath. 
verse 21. And if you know Mark, you'll know in the weeks to come, in fact, in next week, he will get into hot water because of his, his work on the Sabbath. See that 2 verse 23, for example, and then 3 verse 1, another encounter on the Sabbath. And suddenly the religious leaders come and start weighing into him because of his work on the Sabbath. At this point in chapter 1, he, he just about gets away with it. You could just about get away with removing the impure spirit from the guy at the synagogue, but really he shouldn't have raised Simon and Andrew's mother-in-law. A hint of what's to come in the future weeks. He is prepared to work on the Sabbath because he's doing the work of God because he's divine. That seems to be why the cue increases at verse 32. That evening after sunset... You see, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. Sun goes down, Sabbath is over, and so then they head out and they bring their people to Jesus. They bring their patients. And of course, he he begins in the synagogue. He begins in the synagogue because he was the king that Israel ought to be waiting for. He's come first to his own. And things will get complicated with the Jewish leaders. We said that last week where he comes. Do you remember verse 2 and verse 3 of chapter 1? He's going to come and judge the religious establishments. As well, he's going to come and rescue his people. There's this funny interplay going on where you see that at this point, they will get complicated with the religious leaders. But for now, things are quiet. In fact, he is not fundamentally opposed to them. Look, Look how he deals with the leper in verse 44. He heals the leper urges him to go to the priest and to offer the sacrifices and to do it all by the book. He is not fundamentally opposed to them or to the one whom they claim to represent, but he's opposed to their hypocrisy. And so we're in the synagogue and there's an initial amazement because of his teaching. He, he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law, it says. And it wasn't as if there was no teaching about God, of course. No doubt in the synagogue week by week by week there would be. But what seems to set Jesus apart from the contemporary teachers of the time that amazed the people, not his power of rhetoric, not his humor or clarity of insight, even it seems to be that he taught them with authority. It's a bit like you're rummaging around in a power cut and you're trying to find candles and matches trying to work out where the fuse box is, whatever it is, and you can't see, and everyone is blind, and some say this and some say that, and Jesus comes, and suddenly the lights go on. And you see, you see what this world is about, and you see what God is like, and you see who we are, and and there's clarity, and it all makes sense. He teaches as one who can see with authority. And so the people were amazed at his teaching. Do you want to know who you can trust? Do you you want to know who who can make sense of your life? Well, listen to Jesus. And where we don't know whether we can lean on the politicians or the speechwriters or the spin doctors or or their slippery words or all the messages we hear on social media or, or someone says this is where you find life or someone says this is where you find life and we're all just a bit confused and we're... We're in the dark in the power cut, looking for candles and looking for matches, and Jesus comes with authority. 
Here is a voice to listen to. Here is one who will teach you truth. He doesn't just come and say, well, you know, take it or leave it. Here's my take on things. Here are my ideas about God. He's not just one competing voice among many. He is the voice, the the voice to listen to. As he teaches with authority. And the people were amazed. And it's striking, his... His authoritative words of teaching soon become authoritative words with spiritual power. Pick it up at verse 23. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Striking, isn't it? The, the first miracle that Jesus does in Mark's gospel is a, a public exorcism, we might say. You just wonder if there's a hint of more to come. Jesus is going to come and do something spiritual. His public ministry starts with the banishing of this impure spirit. His public ministry will end with, with the cross, where Satan will be defeated and banished finally. But maybe there's an elephant in the room. And the elephant is, what do you make of this talk of impure spirits? Many of us will have lived in the West for the majority of our lives. It's probably not something we've had huge experience of. But this passage is full of them. Indeed, this gospel is full of them. What do we make of that? They're there in verse 23 to 27. We've just seen. You'll get them a bit in verse 32 as well. At the sunset. And then verse 34. Driving out demons. The demon possessed are brought to him and he drove them out. But again, he wouldn't let them speak. It it sounds all a bit like a horror movie, doesn't it? I expect some of us, for some of us, talk of evil spirits sounds like ignorant first century superstition. And we've moved on from that, haven't we? Have a listen to William Blatty. He's a famous film producer who produced a famous film called The Exorcist. Some of you may have seen it. I haven't. He said, as far as God goes, I'm a non-believer. But when it comes to the devil, well, that's something else. The devil does lots of advertising. The devil does lots of commercials. Isn't that interesting? Not so sure about the reality of God. But he's sure about the reality of the devil. And so you see, the Bible doesn't beat around the bush on these issues. It's very clear the devil is real. Every, the forces of evil have been there through every um, century and every part of the world. And it's striking, as we go through Mark, we will see, almost like moths to a flame perhaps, they are attracted to him and then with a word they are removed and they are gone and they are expelled. The, The voice of authority that teaches, the voice of authority that will later go on to calm a storm, is the voice of authority who will silence the demon. Just a simple word. Interesting, there's no flourish or flair, there's no set technique. And as we might expect, the tongues begin to wag and the word begins to spread. 
The next little encounter after the synagogue is interesting. It's a real contrast to the person whom Jesus meets. Um, He doesn't just deal with one type of person. He doesn't deal with people in the same way. At the synagogue, it was very public. At Simon and Andrew's house, it is very private. At the synagogue, he was an anonymous guy. We don't have a name. He he was possessed, and, and he approached Jesus. At the house, it's, it's a woman. She's known by, related to his disciples. She's in bed with a fever, and Jesus comes to her. Of course, a fever doesn't sound too bad to us, but in a day before antibiotics, it could well have been fatal. And instead of falling onto the floor with a shriek as Jesus meets her, their mother-in-law is healed, and she gets up and perhaps serves them an afternoon meal. And as you might expect, tongues continue to wag. The word begins to spread further and further, and so people gather. And Jesus heals them, and he removes demons. He silences them again and again to stop them telling who he really is. And in the next morning, the next morning, verse 35, he's gone. He, he simply leaves this apparently popular and fruitful ministry Is he having second thoughts? No. Maybe he just needs a bit of me time. You know, just to clear the head. No. No, he's praying. He's praying that that glimpse again of the relationship as with the baptism between God the Son and God the Father. And it's striking where this passage is sometimes used as a passage to talk about the importance of daily morning Bible studies... And I think those things are very important. But actually, I wonder if what's better is that we see that Jesus won't fit into our predetermined categories. He's he's doing things his own way rather than the way that everybody else wants. He doesn't do it how his disciples expect. Again and again, you'll see that as we go through Mark's gospel. I don't think this is a passage primarily about how we should get up really early and go to a solitary place and read our Bibles. Well, that may be a very good thing to do. It seems to be, actually, there's something going on here to do with the kind of ministry that Jesus will have. Will it be a ministry of power and glitz and glamour? Or will it be a ministry that ends up at the cross? Verse 35, you get it to solitary place. Verse 45, he heads to lonely places again. He's... He's not going to be the kind of king they're looking for. He's he's not going to wear the kind of crown they were hoping for. He's not going to defeat the kinds of enemies they were expecting him to defeat. And so, in the early morning, he heads away to pray. His PR agent would be pulling his hair out. Don't you think? Come on, Jesus, not now. This is momentum This is the opportunity. Now we can capitalize on the headlines. We can use the platform, Jesus. Let's keep the snowball rolling and increasing. We'll do an exclusive interview. Let's get the hashtags trending. Let's let's get the next YouTube out. Let's make the most of it, Jesus. Don't disappear now. No, says Jesus. Let's, Let's move on. At this point, I've come to preach. Let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages. 
Come on, surely a town to the nearby villages, says Jesus, so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. And we think, that's why you've come, Jesus? What's going on? Why are you not doing all the healings you can? Do you not care? Why are you trying to keep things quiet? Why are you going to villages, Jesus? Well, again and again, we will see he doesn't do things in the way that we would expect. The preaching aspect of his ministry is because the kingdom comes through preaching, I take it. We'll hear it in the parables in weeks to come. The kingdom comes as the seed of the gospel is sown into people's hearts. This message takes root and it transforms people. Spiritual life comes. That is how kingdom, the kingdom grows. But why the secrecy? Why is he keeping it on the down low? Why is he coming in from the margins? Why is he not in Jerusalem already? Well, it's a key idea in Mark. That time will come. The time will come for what is hidden to be revealed, as Mark will say. Later in the Gospel, in chapter 8, as Peter confesses Christ, we'll, we'll finish there for this time in Mark. But we will see we need God to open the blind eyes. We need God to help us see who Jesus really is. We're not able to work it out for ourselves. On our own, we get it wrong. Only he can reveal. And so the mustard seed will grow in its own time. But until then, it will be hidden from all but the few whom God has allowed to see. There is a plan in action. His identity will become more public. But in the mind of Jesus, there's no rush. He won't do things as we expect him to. Final encounter, verse 40 to 45, is a beautiful conversation, a snapshot, a glimpse as Jesus engages with this leper. You can read about lepers in the Bible, places like Leviticus 14, because there, there were all kinds of hoops for them to jump through before healing could happen, and they could be confirmed and reintroduced to society. There was a checklist, again, if you want to Maybe we'll look in home groups, so if you want to have a look later. Leviticus 14, the checklist was the leper was to live outside the camp, a place of brokenness, a place of defilement, a place of death. He was to shout, or she was to shout, unclean, unclean, unclean. And the priest was then to go out and approach the leper. They thought they were healed. And a sacrifice of two birds was to be made, one dying and shed blood, the other flies away in freedom. Pictures of the gospel. And then the leper is to shave all their hair off. Almost like they're being born again, like a newborn. And then there are sacrifices to be made and atonement is to be secured and then reintegration into the, the community again and there's cleanness pronounced over them. And what do you think the leper expects of Jesus? Well, we know... It's meant to take a significant period of time, about a week, before this is all confirmed. And yet for Jesus, there's just instant cleansing, like that. With a compassionate touch. I love that. Jesus didn't need to touch him. He can heal with a word. Again, we'll see that in the weeks to come. But he touches this guy, maybe for the first time in years. And then he sends them off to the priest to do the retrospective sacrifices give him the all clear welcome him back into the community of God's people but 
but just make sure you tell the priest, don't go and spread the oh, and out it goes. Striking, if you get your highlighter out and you highlight this section, you look for recurring words, the clean word is really striking. You can make me clean, he says. The idea of being clean is a word that resonates in our time, and it resonates with the poets of our age as well, if you listen to pop songs all around the place. There's this feeling of uncleanness in people. When we do something wrong, when something is done to us, when we're tainted by words or actions or thoughts, and, and we might try and ignore it or pretend it's not there, but there, it resonates. We feel unclean. And so it's striking what you get in 40 to 45 is this sort of snapshot of the gospel in miniature. Here is the authority of Jesus to make essentially a dead person alive again. And we are like this leper, naturally unclean. We are separated from God. We are outside the walls of the camp. We are spiritually dead and we are shouting, unclean, unclean, and we have no right to approach him. But then there is Jesus. He comes and he takes on flesh. And he comes proverbially outside the camp to come and find us. And then later he himself is taken outside the camp as he dies on the cross for us. And he makes the atonement that we need. He is cut off that we might be brought in. He becomes unclean that we might be clean. He is excluded that we might be included. He will die that we might have life. You see, we are the leper. And Jesus makes us clean that isn't something you've responded to before i'd love you to come and chat to me afterwards to trust jesus for yourself maybe you know something of that uncleanness have confidence with the leper to come to christ and say you can make me clean because he can and the message spreads to the point that Jesus can no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So we've, we've circled over quite high. We've zoomed in and worked through fairly slowly. I just want to land it in four different places as we think through perhaps conversations over coffee or this week in home groups. Um, zoom right in, if you like, zooming into our hearts and seeing how these truths engage with us. On the screen, if that's helpful. The first one to say is that Jesus is in charge. There is nothing that can surprise him. There is nothing that can fox him. He is God's king, and so where sin and its dehumanizing consequences with rebellion and sickness and spiritual forces even come, and they ruin God's world, and they ruin our lives, and they ruin you, and they ruin me, Jesus can deal with that. He is in charge. He can make you clean. He can bring you life. He can bring order out of chaos. But as we saw last week, it's more than just we've got to try and persuade him of that. If we can just twist his arm enough, then, then we'll get what we want. Now, he is more willing to, to bring healing, to bring cleanness than we are to ask. And so you see again that Jesus is compassionate. 
That is, he deals with all kinds of people, with all kinds of problems, in all kinds of ways. And I look out on a room like this and I see all kinds of people with all kinds of problems, all kinds of things going on, all kinds of things keeping you awake at night, all kinds of secrets, all kinds of skeletons. And yet Jesus is compassionate. Whether it's a man possessed by an impure spirit, we don't know his story. Whether it's Simon's mother-in-law and how long she'd had this fever for, we don't know. Whether it's a leper who, by all accounts, had not, ought not be there. Whether it's the crowds and crowds who gather at sunset. Jesus shows compassion. And he brings life. He doesn't deal with us in the same way. Which is great, because sometimes I can look at you with my green eyes and think, well, why doesn't he sort out my rubbish like he sort out that person's rubbish? Why doesn't he show grace to me in that way like he showed it to them? Why doesn't he do for me what I see him doing for them? And yet it's striking that we see in this 24-hour snapshot Jesus dealing with individuals in different ways. And where they had perhaps been hopeless, he brings hope. And maybe where we're praying for things or we've given up praying for things. This ought to be the kind of encouragement that we need to trust him again, to see that he has power and authority, that he's in charge, but also he is he's compassionate, he's kind. And he deals with us uniquely. The third one is that he doesn't do things our way. He just won't do it. We are too easily transfixed by the shiny lights of the world. And where Jesus was almost trying to, to lose followers, to avoid people, ours is a culture that longs for more. And where he was seeking to disassemble his platform, ours is a world that longs for a platform. Just listen to me and what I have to say. Come on, why does nobody care what I think? Now, Jesus was focused on his Father's will and so was prepared and desired and was willing to, to get rid of people and do it the Lord's way. He was secure. He came to preach the message of good news. He went to villages even. You know, and when we put him in a box and when we expect him to do things in the way that we would like, a certain way, perhaps the way that we would do it, then we find we've reduced him down. We've made him in our image. We've made him safe. And maybe we've even made him controllable. Maybe even to the extent that we're in charge. Almost that he serves us. There's something, something surprising, something countercultural you see in Mark's gospel where Jesus sets the agenda and we do not. He doesn't go for the kind of people that we would go for. He doesn't use the kind of strategy that we would use. He doesn't do things in the time frame that we would do. He, he's not a dog on a leash. And yet he's good and we can trust him. Fourthly and finally, be assured of this, a future is coming. Do you see, we get these glimpses of the power and the kindness of Jesus as he deals with a complexity of individuals. And maybe it makes us long for more. Maybe it reminds us of the brokenness of the world. And yet what we're seeing are sort of little glimpses, snapshots of God's kingdom, of the king and his power. A kingdom that, in a sense, began with the coming of the king from last week, verse 14 and 15. 
but a kingdom that's going to go on and on and will never stop, a kingdom where, where the great enemies of mankind are, are dealt with once and for all. The, the outworking of the fall in Genesis 3, where he puts them right again of, of death, of sickness, of Satan, of creation out of kilter. And you see glimpses with this king coming and his kingdom being worked out. And these little actions in Mark are impressive. But you know, they are, they are something of a tiny trailer of what's to come. The real thing is on its way. It's like when the next Star Wars comes out. And you get this two-minute clip. And it goes viral. And it's there to whet your appetite and get you excited. And the Star Wars geeks start salivating and blogging. And, oh, look at that person there. That means this is going to happen. And I wonder about this. And... But you see, the king arrives, the kingdom comes, unclean spirits are expelled, mothers-in-law are raised, lepers are cleansed, and these, these jaw-dropping things, amazing though they are, are just the trailers. We're, we're meant to get excited by them, but we don't just focus on them. They point us somewhere else. It would be like watching the two-minute clip of a Star Wars trailer and never bothered, bothering to go and see the film. It's not how it's meant to work. We're meant to realize the trailer is not enough and more is to come and it whets our appetite and we long for the, for the new heavens and the new earth. A creation where there is no sin and suffering and Satan and death where he wipes every tear from our eyes. Where we see him face to face forever and enjoy him forever. And so we need to finish by saying, friends, keep going. Keep going. This is not it. This is, this is just the trailer, and it's pretty good. But the film is on its way. The new heavens and the new earth are where we belong forever. Let me pray. Lord, captivate us, convince us afresh by who Jesus is, please, as we go through this series in Mark. We confess so easily we can come to perhaps well-known passages and... And struggle to hear because it's familiar. Help us to trust that he is in charge. Lord, you will know where that works out in the reality of each of our lives. As individuals, but as a church together as well. Help us to trust him. Help us to listen to his voice. To follow his ways. To prioritise him to trust that he knows best. Thank you for his compassion. Thank you that you, you do, Lord, deal with us in different ways. Thank you that you are not far off and aloof, but you are with us and kind and compassionate. Help us to trust you, particularly perhaps when you don't do things in the way that we would expect. And help us to keep our eyes fixed on what's to come. Thank you that this is not all there is. Thank you that this is, as we read in Mark and experience now, this is just the trailer of more to come. Help us to keep trusting him until he returns. In his name we pray. Amen. We are going to do a very appropriate thing now, and that is that we are going to um, take the Lord's Supper together. Um, and if you, actually I'm going to go back a page, if you think about the outworking from that passage, 
that we see Jesus in charge, that we see he is compassionate, that he doesn't do things our way, and that a future is coming, it is entirely appropriate that we share bread and wine as he taught us. Because as you see the bread and the wine, you see something of his power. He, he is in charge. His body broken, his blood shed is enough. It is sufficient. His sacrifice is enough. You see his compassion because he is loving and kind and obedient to his father. He is willing even to pour himself out for people like us who don't deserve it. You see, he doesn't do things our way because we look at the cross and we think, really? Is that the plan? It just sounds weird. Are people going to be persuaded by that, Lord? He won't do things in our way. He, he, he doesn't work with the wisdom of the world. And it reminds us, too, that a future is coming. The bread and the wine that we will take in a moment point us to the banquet to come. Point us to that intimacy, that rejoicing, that seeing him face to face. That's no more tears. We see that this world is not all there is. It's a moment of quiet as I go and prepare, and then we shall um, take bread and wine.